0: Thanks, Marg, and uh, welcome everyone at home, and please uh, also make sure you've got that Bible open. Uh, what's most helpful for us is to ask for God's help as we uh, try to understand His Word, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the magnificent foundation that Your Word is for us. Um, and we thank You and rejoice in the fact that we are an us. Help us to understand what that means, and what it cost you to bring us together. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as we've already talked about today, the Olympics are practically over. And I actually think Australia really needed them. And it's not because it gave us something to do during lockdown in particular, but I think it was actually good for our country to be reminded right now that we are in fact one country. You know, the fact that a Queenslander might end up cheering for someone from New South Wales and a Victorian cheering from someone from WA, that we're actually celebrating together and going, we are Australians. The political squabbling and grandstanding between the states has been one of the most disappointing responses that I think we've seen in this pandemic. And even setting aside for a moment the health importance, important, of, of quarantines and lockdowns and border closures, one thing that they have done is it's shown very clearly for us, hasn't it, the pain of exclusion, that exclusion and separates separation brings people and at times the fact that it actually brings out animosity. Good fences make good neighbours or so the saying goes but you know, the bigger the fence, the less neighbourly The relationship becomes. There is an inside and an outside, and the thing about really big fences is that no one can seem to see through them or over them. You see, humanity is good at building walls to separate people. The Israel Palestine Wall, the Great Wall of China, the Berlin Wall, the incomplete Wall of Mexico. But these big walls are just physical expressions of the more common social walls that we build to keep away or separate from us those that are different or strange or intimidating. And if you've ever been on the outside of one of those walls, you know what an unpleasant place it is to be. Well, today's passage is a reminder that the vast majority of us started life spiritually on the outside of a massive massive wall. But the great news of the Gospel is that not only have we been saved from death to life but the Christians, every single one of us, whoever we are and whatever our background or race or heritage or intelligence or physical skill or socio-economic group, are all part of a new, wonderful insight, a new, united, privileged people of God and that every single one of us together has a part to play in God's great plan for the world. You know, sometimes it's easy to think of being a Christian mainly or purely on an individual level, a thing that's just essentially between me and God. And on one level, an important level, it is between me and God, but not only between me and God. See, verse 11 starts with, therefore. Now, therefore, or a since tells you that whatever is about to be said follows on logically from what's been said at some point before. In the previous passage, last week's passage, we were told that God in His grace has saved each of us from being dead in our sins to new life in Christ so that we might walk in the good works that He's prepared in advance for us to do. We've been recruited and recreated from rebels to being God's ambassadors. And so that, therefore, tells us that it is in view of this radical change of nature, of identity, that we need to hear what Paul says next. And what he says next is that God's great makeover of our lives is not just at the level of the individual. Look at verse 11, therefore remember that... you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, I might just leave it there, have a think about this. The first thing that Paul tells his readers to do is to do what? Remember, that is actually the command that governs this passage. Remember where you stood before Jesus Christ came onto the scene. Paul is writing to a predominantly non-Jewish readership and his line is basically this. Don't forget that you used to be foreigners with respect to God and his people. You were Gentiles by birth, not Jews. You were on the outer, you were estranged. You were on the other side of a wall that kept you out. You know, from the world's point of view, the Jewish people would have looked a lot like they were the outsiders. They were different they stood out. If you were going to pick the cool group from the ancient world, the Jews most certainly would not have been in it. They ate different foods, they wouldn't marry anyone who wasn't a Jew, they wouldn't participate in any of the pagan festivals that everyone else thought was so important to life, they staunchly refused to work at all every seven days They didn't associate with non-Jews any more than they had to and they didn't hide it. From the world's point of view, they were the equivalent of that kid at school who was told by their mum that they couldn't play with the other children, always had to go home for lunch and wasn't allowed to play sport. But the reality, from God's point of view, and let's face it, that's the one that really matters, well, the reality was the opposite. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. See, in God's eyes, they were it. And so the picture suddenly changes, doesn't it? This kid off by himself is in fact the kid that has everything that the rest of the kids don't have. This kid is the in-kid. The others are in reality the ones on the outside looking in. But make no mistake, here is no live and let live kind of difference. The Jews knew what side of the wall they were on. In verse 11, Paul reminds his readers the blunt label that Gentiles were given by the Jews of their time. They were called the uncircumcised... Or literally, it reads, basically, you who are called foreskins. How's that for a racial slur? But those who called the Gentiles foreskins also called themselves the circumcised. Circumcision, the cutting off of the foreskin of every male that's eight days old, every male convert, was given in the Old Testament to be a physical sign of the covenant that God made with the Israelites... It was a permanent sign to set apart their very person as being dedicated to God. Whatever a man might look like on the outside, one thing that could always be checked could to tell you whether he was a Jew or not. But like any inside group, they had become proud. Now, Paul had no time for this pride in a merely physical sign. He calls it merely a thing done to the body by the hands of men. Physical circumcision is man's work, not God's. But his point in this verse is simply to remind them of the reality of their estrangement from the Jewish people, that they just didn't belong together. In Jewish eyes, they were simply foreigners. They were foreskins. But the point Paul makes next is more profound. Beyond the name-calling and the labelling the difference between the two was a one and a spiritual one. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. As non Jews, their estrangement was huge. They had no connection with God's chosen king, the Christ. They were excluded from being part of God's chosen people, Israel. They were foreigners, miles away from the covenants of the promise. That is all the promises God had made of blessing and greatness and and of eternal life and of his special care for them. And the result is that they were without hope. They were without God in the world. Now, I want the weight of that to rest on you for a moment. Anyone not born a Jew was without hope. Now, sure, they might have hoped for a family, hoped for a house of their own or prosperity or fame, but they had no hope with respect to God and eternity. In other words, no hope that was anything other than temporary. And because they worshipped things other than the one true God, even their worship, no matter how significant it might have seemed to them, even their worship was a fiction. The object of their worship, whatever it was, simply did not exist. They were without God. Literally, atheoi. Atheists. Paul is being slightly ironic here because you see... This was the slur that the Greeks and Romans tended to throw against Jews and Christians who didn't believe in all the gods, but only the one God of the Bible. Paul says, you know what, when you're a pagan, the truth is that you may have believed in a pantheon of gods, but you actually didn't have any. And of course, those today who call themselves atheists, often with pride, sadly don't tend to grasp the deep poverty that is expressed by that very name. The same can be said of those who are agnostic, those who don't, may not deny Him but recognise that they don't know Him. To be with him, to not know Him, is the greatest lack that can ever be. To not know and love the glorious Lord of all creation when he's right there to be loved and known. What a dud being a Gentile, right? Well, who watching has Anglo Catholic or Celtic heritage? Or Asian? Or Arab? Or African? Or Greek? Or Latin? or Slavic, or Islander, or any others, anyone watching not of Jewish heritage, then we need to do the remembering too. Remember this, if not for Jesus, I, you, would be separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God in the world. We were outsiders by birth. When Jesus walked the earth, my ancestors were worshipping the spirits of the trees and the earth. And it's only because someone came and preached the good news about Jesus that there was any hope for any of us. We need to understand our pre-Christ predicament. If it wasn't for Jesus, we would all be far, 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 far away. So, if you don't have Jewish heritage, you're the Gentiles. We are, according to the flesh, the ethnoi, the nations. This whole Jew-Gentile thing has everything to do with us. And that's why we can rejoice that once again, in the Bible, we have those two fabulous words, but now, words which signify a massive reversal. Have a look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Separated, excluded, foreigners, without hope, without God. But now, we who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. To this seemingly irreconcilable situation, Jesus' blood, his death, has taken us from being on the outside to being on the inside with God and as a part of his people. But I hope you noted what Paul told his readers to do. Remember, not forget the past and move on, but remember, don't take your new position for granted. Don't get cocky or proud. Don't take being part of God's church as if it's a light or small thing. Remembering what it was like to be on the outside is what makes you cherish being on the inside. Back to the passage. We who were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. How? How does that blood bring us near? Well, the next five verses help us understand the wonderful peace, the reconciliation that Jesus brings. In a nutshell, it's because Jesus' death on the cross breaks down the wall. Look at verses 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now verse 14 kind of summarizes what Jesus achieved. He made the two estranged peoples, Israel and the Gentiles, the nations, one by destroying the of hostility that separated them from each other and from God. Now these few verses make some pretty big statements, and so a few things we need to understand here. First, exactly, what was this wall that divided so much? Well, verses 15 and 16 tell us that the wall, the barrier, was God's Old Testament law with all of its commands and regulations. As we've already seen, God's people, the descendants of Israel, were to actively separate themselves from the nations around them and their practices and live according to God's commands. That difference was very deliberate. And the law, though, was like a wedge driving Jew and Gentiles apart and defining them. It separated Jews and Gentiles religiously and socially and you know what? It caused deep hostility in both directions. If a Gentile wanted to know Israel's God, they had to stop being a Gentile. They had to submit to circumcision, submit to the law of Moses and live as a Jew. That's a serious wall. But verses 15 and 16 tells us that Jesus destroyed this wall. He abolished the law in His flesh, that is, in His death on the cross. But wasn't it God's law? Why would Jesus abolish that? Has God now decided that the law was a bad idea after all? Surely not. Well, so what is the phrase mean? Well, the phrase abolish the law in the original carries kind of the sense of making the law of no effect. Now, the law, as a set of instructions and commands and regulations, though good in itself, stood as testimony against people when they failed to obey it. And so, in this regard, the law condemned people in their sin judgment over them by keeping on testifying that they're breaking it, right? And so, to illustrate, uh, do not steal. Now, I take it we all think that that's a pretty good command. I don't like being stolen from, it's, it's not right. We like it, we agree with it, it's good. But if someone is caught stealing, then the law, do not steal, comes into effect. In other words, it stands testimony against the thief, and that what they were doing is wrong, and that they should be punished for breaking it. When he died on the cross, Jesus took on himself the condemnation that the law brings for us when we all fail to meet it. Our sin is punished in Jesus, and so the law then has no effect on us. We are forgiven. We are made right. And that means that the Old Covenant of law-following is redundant and has been replaced by a covenant that is for both Jews and Gentiles, salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And if that Old Covenant, the one that separated Jews and Gentiles, is no longer operative, then there's no cause for any hostility anymore. The division. Is gone. So, the wall was the Old Testament law, Jesus has rendered that law ineffective and to what purpose? Well, two. Look at the second part of verse 15 there. Christ's purpose in removing the hostility by abolishing the law was first of all to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two. With the wall removed, There's nothing to separate humanity, no division along the lines of race or heritage. In God's eyes, there's no longer Jew and Gentile, simply Christian. And note, the Jews weren't turned into Gentiles and the Gentiles weren't turned into Jews. No, they have an entirely new identity. They are one in Christ. And so the result is a reconciliation, a beautiful reconciliation, peace. But Jesus' second purpose in abolishing the law is to reconcile both Jew and Gentile together to God. Here we get a great twist. You see, the wall of the law was not only a barrier between Jew and Gentile, but between all people. And God. The Jew may have been on the inside, but the very law that they had been given condemned them too. They too were alienated from God. Did you notice that verse 17 there is actually a quotation of Isaiah 57, verse 19, that was read to us earlier by Mark? A promise from God that he would actually reconcile himself with an Israel. That is exiled in judgment. They're the ones who are far away that need peace preached to them. They also, along with the Gentile, needed to be reconciled with God. In his death on the cross to pay for their sin, Jesus destroys that wall too. Christ must bring peace to both the faraway Gentile and to the nearer Jew, both of whom needed it. And you know what? The word preached there is the gospel word, to proclaim the good news. The gospel is the good news of peace for all who would believe. In Christ, Jew and Gentile are brought into a no-walls relationship with each other and God. And that is a beautiful thing. And the consequences are profound. See, Christ has given us a new identity, a new unity and a new purpose. He's doing something truly great with us. And and the language of building and of houses is what dominates the verses that follow. See, God's got this new building project going on and that's what we see in verses 19 to 22. First, you'll see, He's forming a new household with us. Verse 19, consequently, You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. Now, there's some language stuff going on here. So, the phrases there parallel each other. So, we are no longer foreigners, but fellow citizens with God's people. We are no longer strangers, but we are members of His household. Now, the first pair is the language of city and state. No longer outsiders, but members of the same polis or town. We are all locals. Even more special, God's people there is literally the saints, the holy ones. Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are pictured here as dwelling together now as as neighbours. Set apart both of them set apart together for Jesus. And the second pairing of terms, however, is even closer than that. Both words include the Greek word for home in the middle of them. We're no longer strangers, literally those who live beside the home, but we are the actual home, we're the household of God. In other words, we are all together family members in God's home. When we talk in our live stream and notices and talk about being a family, that's the language the Bible uses. Second, God is building building us on and shaping us by His Word. That's what verse 20 says. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In other words, our new unity together is founded on the Scriptures and it takes its shape from Jesus. Now, this is important because what this says is that God's new household is a defined household. The limits of this household are based on the Scriptures. God's Word as spoken by the apostles and prophets. In other words, there are no back sheds built on other foundations. There's one house. Churches are not to base what they do on a style, or or on a marketing model, or even their own traditions, but are to be uh, to found what they do on what the Bible teaches. And Jesus Christ must be the cornerstone. Ephesians could not be clearer, and I hope you picked this up already, um, that all we have as Christians, all we are as Christians is found in the one place, in Christ. Any building takes its lines and angles from the cornerstone. So that means that the church, God's church, must grow to resemble Christ and it must be seen to do so and be diligent in doing so. Now, as an aside, that's actually why we mustn't read this piece as mean that says we never um, disagree or challenge and that there's never actually a time for exclusion. See, our unity and peace comes from being reconciled in Christ and so when a church or individuals in it move away from God's Word, and choose that they would rather resemble the world, not Christ, then they are placing themselves outside of the building that God is constructing. Correction, a rebuke, even a withdrawal of fellowship is then appropriate in the hope that our brother or sister will see where they risk placing themselves, outside of Christ and repent, and retake their place in the great work that God is building by His Word and the Gospel. Well, Paul then describes the kind of building that God is constructing with us, and it's not just any kind of building, do you notice that? It's a temple. God is growing us together in holiness. Verse 21, in Him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. That means God's church, His united church, has got a job to do, and that is to be a holy temple to God. Do you see that verse 21? That's what we're building, built together in order to be. And notice the dynamic language here. Joined together, rises to become. And so the language suggests This project is still happening, as Paul writes, and as we read it. You know, elsewhere in the Bible, it's the individual Christian whose body is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here, Paul is speaking of all Christians together, centred on God's Word and the Gospel of Christ in particular, because it's in Him that we're joined together. We grow together into what God has called us to be. And when did He call us to be? Remember chapter 1? from before the creation of the world, to be a loved people that are holy and blameless in his sight. That has never stopped being God's purpose. It's the purpose that he had before he made a universe and it will continue to be that purpose and we're in it. But surely the climax of this whole section, especially from where we began, is verse 22. We who at one point were far away... And atheoi, those without God, now know God immediately and personally. He's not just near. Look at verse 22. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God is making His home among us. Now, this gospel of peace and reconciliation between all people and God is so wonderful that Paul is going to go on and tell them of the great privilege that he feels it is to preach it, regardless of circumstances. That's what chapter 3 is going to talk about. And chapters 4 to 6 explore in depth what what this all means as we try to work it out in our lives. And so we're going to get more practical when we look at that second half of the book. But as I said earlier, there is a command here. And that command is to remember all of this. Live your lives never forgetting what God has done for us all and is now doing among us in Christ. Remember and so as we finish, I want to suggest three things, at least, that remembering means. First, remembering means prizing fellowship. Once we realise how essentially corporate salvation really is, that our Saviour died to bring people together to Him, and that being built together is what God is actually doing with us, then you've got to prize and value the fellowship of God's people, like he does. Gathering together is absolutely fundamental to being a follower of Jesus. You must hear that, you must see that in these verses. Gathering together is absolutely fundamental to being a follower of Jesus, in whom we are together. Now, remembering this is critically important, especially now, isn't it? I mean, right now, for us, in our circumstances here, when we're necessarily forced apart by this pandemic. See, this separation that we are currently living through is important and it is loving for those who are their neighbours, as Christians are surely called to do. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're separate. It's, it's actually, we would say, it's love. But the temptation might easily be to withdraw into ourselves, especially if we have family around us or simply enjoy our own company and don't find lockdown awful. We need to remember that Christ died to bring you near and not just to him he died to bring you near to other people to the other ones that he has called and if you are remembering that then you know what that's going to be bigger than your hatred of zoom or the telephone or email those things will not be greater than your love for the household of god of whom you are so privileged to be a part. You will prize fellowship. Not just knowing there are other Christians out there, fellowship, being with them. And it is worth thinking through as well, what you're going to do when vaccination levels are high enough to allow things to start to open up more safely. What will you do? What are your plans? Have you thought about that now? How quickly are you planning on returning to fellowship once you can? How regular do you think you need to be as you do that? Now, I anticipate we're going to have impaired fellowship in some form or another for most of the rest of this year. There has never been a time to remember, better, to remember that I am part of an us. Second, and there'll be more to say on this when we get to chapter 4, but remembering will mean keeping the peace. We are all no longer outsiders, but the household of God together. Jesus has formed Jew and Gentile alike, people from every tribe, language, people and nation, into a new community of God's people. We're Christians first and we're everything else second. Our nationality is secondary our race is secondary, our language is secondary, our gender is secondary. Have you grasped that? You're a Christian and that is the greatest identity that you have. So let me ask you, who would make you feel uncomfortable if you were sitting next to them? Right now in your home, when we're gathering again, A church, someone with a different skin colour, someone who spoke another language, perhaps someone from a different subculture you don't quite get, someone from a different socioeconomic class, maybe it's a different age group. What kind of person or personality, perhaps, would you rather be separate from? Every one of us has a wall or two, don't we? Every one of us has our prejudices, our biases. But as people who were on the outside and were taken in at great cost, we have no right to hold on to old enmities or form new ones reconciliation, do you see see the seeding throughout this passage of reconciliation and bringing together and of peace? Reconciliation is at the heart of what God has done for us. It has to be at the heart of how we relate to one another. The natural state of the Christian community should be peace, where walls of hostility are actively being broken down in light of the gospel. If there are any walls still standing between you and another Christian, they need to come down. And lastly, remembering means growing together in holiness, right? Now, something that was raised in the eulogy at the beginning of the letter that's going to come up consistently through this letter is holiness. Fellowship is not the end in itself. It is a holy fellowship, a fellowship founded on God's Word where God's presence among us is understood and revered. Our relationships with each other need to spur one another on actually to godliness and to bringing Him glory. We are here for Him and we need to remember and delight in the fact that He is always here, present among us. Praise God for that. Amen.